Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I don't normally have trouble sleeping, but in the rare times I do, I often play this funny game in my head where I imagine I've traveled back in time and I have to try to survive. First, I imagine learning the local language well enough to convince people not to kill me. Then I picture myself learning some craft or job in order to get some food and shelter. And then I imagine getting rich by impressing the local king with all my amazing knowledge about the future and technology. My fantasies are dashed, however, when I realize I can't actually explain how anything more complicated than a wheel works and the ancient civilization imprisons me for being a raving lunatic. The idea of time travel has fascinated people for centuries. In 1733, an Anglican clergyman named Samuel Madden wrote Memoirs of the 20th Century about a guardian angel who travels back in time from a dystopian 1997 where Jesuits have taken over the world. Washington Irving's 1819 short story, Rip Van Winkle, had a guy fall asleep for 20 years and wake up to a very different world. And Edward Bellamy's 1888 time travel book, Looking Backward, even spawned a political movement and utopian communities. But the author who really took the idea of time travel mainstream was H.G. Wells. So he was really in the center of things. Um, But he was also just a really beloved writer, and he was read by people, by working class men and women, by young people, um, by people of all around the world. He was translated into tons of languages and also, of course, read in his native English. That's Sarah Cole, professor of English and comparative literature and dean of humanities at Columbia University. H.G. Wells didn't just pioneer the time travel novel, but really the entire science fiction genre. It all began with his first novel, The Time Machine. The Time Machine is what started it. It started uh, all of this for Wells, but I think more importantly for most of us, um, it it started um, a a whole series of ways of writing and thinking about um, science and the future and the relation of the individual to a a variety of different kinds of um, cosmic and cosmological structures that, you know, helped to, to form science fiction. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Sarah Cole to discuss H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. So let's talk about the, the amazing life of H.G. Wells, which in some ways could be the subject of one of his stories. Um, Wells... Um, the most important thing I think for all of us to know at the outset is that the Wells who became extremely famous became a kind of worldwide phenomenon and a uh, political thinker and a writer of all kinds, a voice heard really all around the world in many media, um, was actually born into um, a background in which none of that would have been expected. He was born in 1866 
in uh, England, out just outside of London, what's now a suburb of London. Um, and he was born into a uh, family in which his mother was a lady's maid and his father was a gardener, a shopkeeper, and he also uh, was a professional cricketer. But don't let any listeners think of that in terms of an NBA player or something. That was not a professional uh, uh, status in the way it is now. Wells was born Herbert George Wells. His nickname was Bertie. But when he grew up, he went by his initials, H.G. The life plan for him was to leave school at age 14, which he originally did. That was typical for a late 19th century English uh, person of the lower middle classes or below. Um, And then to um, be in the drapery trade. So that was the life plan was that he would be an apprentice to a draper and then move on to, uh, if he was lucky, maybe have his own drapery business. But young Wells was very unhappy as a draper's apprentice. He had grueling 13-hour workdays and slept in a crowded dormitory with the other apprentices. This kind of existence was pretty common for working-class young men in urban England. So on the one hand, Wells's early life was pretty miserable. On the other hand, he was a genius, and he had some fortuitous experiences as a child where he found himself in the um, estate uh, home where his mother was a maid, able to access the libraries there and began his career of reading. He read everything he could get his hands on, including books on adventure, travel, and foreign worlds. Some of his favorite books were Plato's Republic and Thomas More's Utopia. But he was especially drawn to literature about science. That was the direction that he ultimately was able to go Um, through a series of uh, literal and figurative accidents. He found himself in London um, in the 1880s, and um, he worked as a journalist, a kind of crack journalist. Um, He was reviewing plays. He was writing all kinds of things. Um, But the big point for us now is that he was able to get a scholarship to study at the Normal School of Science, which was a new university in London that was founded to help train teachers of science. There, Wells was steeped in the science of his day, and he was a very curious learner, despite his grades. He was not a particularly remarkable or exemplary student. He was always missing class, and he failed one of his classes. But the class that he loved the most was biology, which he was able to take with um, Thomas Henry Huxley, who was the great 19th century biologist and Darwinian. And it was from Huxley that he learned about evolution. Um, and that became a kind of a, an organizing structure in his thought for the rest of his life. Wells' scientific education would become one of several inspirations for his novels. During his time at the normal school, Wells also became interested in social reform. He was one of the founders of the school magazine, The Science School Journal, in which he wrote about his views on literature and society. He graduated in 1887 at the age of 21. He eventually earned a Bachelor of Science degree in zoology. A few years later, he published his first work, Textbook of Biology. After leaving academia, Wells was jobless. He stayed with his aunt and earned money by writing short, humorous articles for various journals. He was very prolific with these articles, and they became pretty popular. And then from there, he began his writing career, and his first novel was indeed The Time Machine in 1895. So what's the story of The Time Machine? So the, the, the story is, is um, I mentioned earlier, the setting in 
a kind of comfortable late Victorian home um, in which the never named time traveler has gathered some guests at the opening and one of whom is the frame narrator who's telling this whole story. Um, and he brings them in and they have dinner and over sort of cigars and claret or whatever, he shows them, he, he gives them a little lecture on the fourth dimension. He uses the example of a cube to help illustrate his point. He says that a cube has the first three dimensions, length, width, and height. But it also exists for a period of time. This is the fourth dimension. So they all start talking about whether we can move along this time dimension. And the time traveler reveals that yes, we can. So he shows them a model of a, of a machine he has built. Um, it's a miniature. Um, and he says, let's test it out. And they check to make sure there's no trickery. And he uh, pushes the little lever and it whoosh, disappears. The time traveler says the machine has been sent into the future. And then he shows them the larger version of the time machine. The guests aren't really sure what they saw. And they're skeptical that the miniature machine was actually sent into the future. But either way, the time traveler invites them to come back in a week. And they do, and he's not around, they don't find him there, and then he kind of comes stumbling in, all worn and bleeding and looking terrible. He cleans himself up, serves them all dinner, and then shares his story of where he's been. He said that earlier that day, he finally finished assembling the time machine. He got in it and went on his first trip. Eventually he arrives in the world, the same location where he would be in Richmond, outside of London, sort of outer London, in 800,000 to seven, <laughs> 701, almost, a bit, let's say 800,000 years, give or take, into the future. Um, and there he has a series of adventures. He meets, the first people he meets are these little kind of miniature people who seem almost like children. They're running around and pointing and they have a language, but it's quite simple. Wells calls these creatures the Eloi. So he has a series of, uh, of experiences with them, um, but he realizes there's more going on. He wants to explore and understand. And early on, he rescued a, a young woman, girl-like creature, uh, Weena, who is the sort of semi-love interest of the story. She's not a woman. If you're interested in gender dynamics, um, you'll be pretty disappointed at them. Um, there are almost no women in the whole story. It's a very male world. And Weena is somewhere between a a child and a woman, and the relationship is quite creepy um, between her and the traveler. So off they go um, on a uh, trip to explore to try to find out what's happening, and then they begin to discover, he begins to discover things. One is that the Eloi, as these little people are called, are afraid of the dark. They sleep together. They are, when he tries to sleep outside, they try to pull him in. They're very scared. And he had some early encounters with a kind of white, shadowy creature so he goes off to try to find out what's happening and eventually comes upon some wells. I think it's important that they're described as wells. Um, and he recognizes early on that whatever's down those wells are going to be critical. So it seems as if the Eloi are us humans evolved over a million years. This is, and his early theories are, well, work has been finished. Strife is over. They live happily with nature. They have what they need to eat. They have what they need to live. There's no inequality. There's no uh, need for much. Um, but there is this weird thing going on. And where are the older people? Um, and so what we find eventually are the Morlocks who turn out to be the other side of the human evolutionary line. And what we learn is that humans have split into two species. 
the Eloi who live above ground and have that quality, that childlike frightened quality, and the Morlocks who living underground are bleached and pale. They are the industrialists of the future. They live in a kind of uh, hellish industrial underground. They are the descendants of the working classes as well as figures it. Um, and their food um, is the Eloi. They uh, go up above ground and snatch them in the dark, and that's what they eat. Um, and so it's a horrifying story of a kind of cannibalism, you might say, um, but of these two uh, directions that humanity has evolved. Um, so the traveler has a bunch of adventures trying to escape. He ends up setting a lot of things on fire. There's a kind of journey of across a forest. And so eventually he fights with the Morlocks over his time machine. Poor Weena is lost along the way. He eventually manages to get in his time machine and travels even further into the future. He goes forward in time to see what's going to happen. And he makes a couple of stops, a, a number of millions of years in the future. And his last stop, 30 million years in the future, the earth is dying. Everything, all life essentially is gone. There's some kind of weird flopping thing out in the water. Um, the sun doesn't really rise anymore. And here Wells is picking up on contemporary theories that the sun was losing its um, energy and that the earth was therefore slowly going to cool. And there was a pretty strong consensus among um, scientists at the turn of the century or a little before that this was happening and that eventually the earth would freeze. It wasn't imminent, you know, it was in the millions to billions, but that was the general view. And he gets back into his time machine and manages to get home and that's what the travelers see. Um, and then uh, he tells this story, which they mostly don't believe. Um, and then uh, the narrator um, comes back, I guess the next day to check on him and finds him packing up for another voyage and he waits for him but the traveler never returns and the narrator thinks about where he might have gone into the past. Scientific advancements in Wells's time were rapidly changing his society's understanding of the universe and humanity's place in it. New ideas like Darwin's theory of evolution and the theory that the sun was losing energy revealed the temporal nature, the hidden ticking of the clock to all of life. British culture was in a frenzy to discover more scientific knowledge, an excitement and urgency that Wells's novels reflect. My feeling about Wells is that the sense of grippingness is not only about his kind of mastery of a certain type of suspense genre, but it's about the story that he's telling and the urgency and intensity of the way he thinks about the human condition whether in time, that is the class structure of the late 19th century that we talked about in terms of his own life, but which is now extrapolated out into this, into this dystopic future, um, but also in larger nets and webs and, and streams of evolution of in terms of the earth cooling, thermodynamics, different, uh, and, of, and, of the, and at the end of the novel also, there's, there's a lot of talk about how the earth has stopped rotating. And so there are all these kind of, um, kind of um, astronomical uh, scales as well. And so it's the kind of human experience of being in these different um, uh, constructions where the, the person is kind of caught in these larger, um, uh, streams and threads of time and space, um, these larger currents. That was the word I was looking for. You mentioned that it, his stories have an archetypal quality, that they're 
um, that they're universal in that they're kind of like parables. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that quality and the way that, you know, there's enough details to give it some texture, but it's, it's not so specific as to be very time bound. He was quite the futurist. That was one of the key designations of his form of thinking. That was what he was most, one of the things he was most famous for um, as a figure in world thought. He was always called upon to make predictions. Um, You know, just when the World's Fair was in New York in 1938, was it? He was asked by the New York Times to write their cover story about the exhibition. It was called The World of Tomorrow. Um, And everybody was the natural person to go to because he was always thinking about the future. And he actually felt that this wasn't just an imaginative exercise. He felt that it was a terrible moral failing of the Western societies that they had not been futurists, that they hadn't really tried to understand what was going to happen. They might say they're doing this or that for the future in some generalized way, but they hadn't actually turned the great might of their collective imagination to the future. And he saw that as his calling. I've often wondered, and he kind of muses about this in his autobiography, whether he wrote The Time Machine, it was a huge success, so he just kept writing things about the future, or whether this was always the orientation and this was, it kind of had to be this way. The Time Machine kicked off a long career for Wells. He wrote consistently for the next 50 years, um, and he wrote, and he wrote, and he wrote in many, many, many different forms. We call them genres today, but many of these didn't really have life as a a specific kind of writing at the time he was doing them. He wrote textbooks, he wrote nonfiction books, he wrote novels, he wrote pamphlets and manifestos, uh, he made films, he uh, wrote um, all different kinds of short pieces, short fiction, Uh, he had a column in a newspaper. So he was just a phenomenon in that way. And then the last thing I'll say is that over time, Um, he became uh, a sort of world intellectual figure. Wills' work quickly earned him a reputation as a man of ideas. But rather than write philosophical essays, he often used science fiction as a way to explore his political and social ideas. He had radical ideas. He was a socialist, but he was a very um, idiosyncratic and uh, kind of eclectic socialist. And his main goal and hope in life was to end war. Um, around the world, and he felt that the way to do that was by having a single unified world government. Um, And so he played with that idea and worked towards that idea in many forums for the next, most of his writing career. Um, And over the the course of time, he became somebody that would meet with uh, leaders of countries. He met with both Roosevelt in the United States, with Lenin, with Stalin. There were some famous meetings with them. Um, he, all the British prime ministers, Churchill was a, had a particularly interesting kind of on again, off again relationship with him and read all of his books. How does the time uh, shape the trajectory of his whole career? Wells is writing in 1895 in London um, in a particular moment in time. And that is everywhere apparent in these stories. Um, the professionalization of the sciences was happening, of course but wasn't complete. And so, for example, the time machine itself, the time traveler, who's never named, um, who's the protagonist of the story and the main narrator, he speaks for most of the of the tale, um, it, the whole story takes place in his Richmond kind of townhouse, and um, they enter his private laboratory. He's never given all the other guests that make up the evening that originally sees a model of the time machine, and then later 
hears the story of time travel that the traveler tells, and then the frame narrator himself, who puts it all together and writes an epilogue, um, they're all named by their professions. There's a journalist, there's a psychologist, and so forth. Um, the time traveler is not, and he's a kind of gentleman scientist. He's an inventor, um, he invents this machine. But anyway, so the idea that a kind of lay person might have access to in extremely complex new ideas of science and that that might shape the rest of this culture, that it isn't cordoned off or seen as a kind of track. Science at the time wasn't really a big part of the educational curriculum, not the way it is today. It was usually left for higher education. Wells and his former teacher at the normal school, Thomas Huxley, wanted to change that. They believed that science should be the foundation of all education. And if you think about British education, both at the secondary level, the elementary level, the secondary level, and at the collegiate and past level, science was a very marginalized or non-existent part of that curriculum. So that was something about, well, about which Wells came to feel passionately. But I mention all this to say that science was simultaneously in the kind of general intelligent intelligentsia and culture, but also not thought of as one's education. Um, and I think that's important because these texts, part of their exoticism and wonder come from the fact that these are ideas that would be new to most people. Um, but the idea that somebody who isn't a professional scientist might have access to them is something that would have been of their time. The late 19th century was an era of dramatic scientific and technological progress. There was the invention and refinement of electric lights and electricity, the camera, typewriter, electric battery, telephone, aspirin, sewing machine, and telegraph. But it was also an era of great intellectual debate, especially about the theory of evolution. We're used to evolution being pretty much universally accepted as true. But at the time, it was still very much a live question. When Wells is writing The Time Machine, when Wells began his career, it was anything but settled. And yet it had arrived as a major concept. And I think the, for example, this idea that there must be what we see apes, we see chimpanzees, we see ourselves. If we are going to accept that there's some connection or relation, we're not going to take the biblical narrative of creation as the place humans came from. How do we read that? The Victorians thought about something they called the missing link, um, which was the gap, as they saw it, between animals, non-human animals, and animals. Um, Wells was always filling in those missing links in his imagination, and that is a big part of the sort of sensation of the tales that he told that were based in biological and other sciences. Wells saw science as an incredibly powerful force that could be used to help or hinder humanity. While some scientific advancements improve life, such as antibiotics or refrigeration, others, like advanced weaponry, can cause enormous destruction. But even with that risk, he believed society should fully embrace science. That's what Wells wanted to do. He wanted to let it speak, he wanted to listen, and he wanted to organize society accordingly. So he was, this is right at the beating heart of all of his work, this doubleness about science, that it could and would and must be our savior, but that its application could and would and very well might be our destroyer. Besides time travel, Wells explored other futuristic, scientific, and utopian themes in his other novels, 
such as The Island of Dr. Moreau, War of the Worlds, and The Invisible Man. If Time Machine sets off science fiction as a, as a, as a genre, um, what, what comes before and what, what do you think are some of the other inspirations leading up to um, his, his own work? There are lots of them, of course. Um, Frankenstein was always very um, powerful in his mind. And if we were talking about the island of Dr. Moreau today, in which beings are made from other beings, we'll just say um, Frankenstein it looms very large there. Um, Faust, I mean, really, I would say that, I mean, there are, in his utopias, there are more, there was more, of course, um, and other utopian thinkers closer at hand, like Edward Bellamy or um, uh, William Morris, News from Nowhere. There were a lot of, um, there was a whole tradition, really, of 19th century utopian socialist writing. Wells was also influenced by folklore. He often wrote about the ogre um, in the kind of Western imaginary. He had this idea that the ogre was a holdover from Neanderthals. Um, so he's very interested in the sort of childlike imagination. Um, there are so many literary influences. There are people like Milton's Comus, The Mask, which is another one that comes into a lot of his his works, you know, various Shakespeare plays. He was enormously wide Gulliver's Travels, um, enormously widely read in especially the English, also the European traditions. He had a special place in his heart for Plato, particularly the Republic, since in his utopian um, writings, he was trying to think about setting up a perfect society. And so that is the one he returns to the most frequently. Another powerful influence on Wells was Christianity. His mother was very religious and instilled a strong sense of evangelical Christianity in young Wells. He had a lot of kind of religious language that he used towards his vision of a world state. He said that was a religion. He thought it was God. But in terms of organized religion as it existed, he saw himself as completely rejecting it. And he was always um, in uh, at odds with and in conflict with Catholics and other uh, religious groups. So it's a um, it's a legitimate, you know, self story because I do think there is something in those um, powerful narratives of massive destruction and massive worldwide spiritual renewal that for kind of forever eternal renewal that he that stuck with him and helped to shape him. Wells was a brilliant writer and thinker, but he shared many of the blind spots of his time. Wells is not a saint. He is not perfect. Many of his beliefs are ones I find abhorrent. He is someone who thought about and espoused some theories, including he was not a eugenicist, but there's a kind of eugenic worldview, especially in his later, some of his later works that are really unpalatable. And other things is, I mentioned the lack of an interesting thinking about women in the future and um, a sort of tendency, even though he thought of himself and was thought of as this big feminist, in fact, uh, women seem to be pretty thinned out and and kind of um, uninteresting and, and sort of subservient to larger male projects in a lot of his work. So, you know, there it isn't as if we've discovered someone who represents all of our values, but I think we're discovering someone who represents our interests and someone who was writing and speaking to a gigantic population in a way that gives us all different kinds of frictions and, 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 and collaborations and back and forth that we just haven't seen. Could you say a word about Wells's influence more broadly? You know, if, if you're going to talk about, even if he's a little under-recognized, um, what 
think, you know, what, in what ways did he push ideas forward that we recognize today? An interesting um, kind of contradiction in the place of Wells in the 20th century is that, and the 21st century, is that he's not recognized in academia. He's not taught, he's not thought of as a major figure in any of the movements that we might think of as the central ones in literary and cultural studies in the 20th century. Um, and, it, and so that can be, there's a lot of recovery that can be done. And not only, I mean, I, I'm interested in him as a, as, a, as a literary writer. I'm interested in The Time Machine as a novel and as part of the English and, and world literary tradition. Um, but there are many other ways in which Wells can be thought about in big uh, areas of of Western thought and of intellectual history and of political history. Um, so that's an act of neglect, or that's a, such a story of neglect and maybe recuperation. Recuperation with all the caveats we recognize of his not being the exact hero that we might wish he could be in terms of some of his views um, and statements. But the other side, the kind of weird contradiction with that is his unbelievable influence in popular culture and his unbelievable um, resiliency in our collective fantasy life. So he's everywhere and nowhere. Um, and that's, that's, that is in some ways what makes him such an interesting figure is that combination. If we knew he was always everywhere, then that would have been thought about and written about and known and taught for so long. If he were just interesting, but not influential, that would be fine too. But it's really that combination of things. The time machine really kickstarted science fiction as a distinct genre, a genre that is endlessly adaptable. All of these areas, I would say Wells's influence or his kind of, the way he helped shape how we think is very strong. Um, so in terms of the text itself, there have been many iterations, films, they're always popping up. There are all kinds of media adaptations, um, of course, comics and uh, graphic novels and, and all kinds of things. Um, novels written about Wells and time machines, so sort of a, there's a kind of meta quality of some of these works where Wells is in it and a time machine type of thing. So you get some of those. Um, so that's a very rich uh, category. So I would say that the, this story has itself been, you know, firmly established as one of the stalwarts in that kind of early science fiction and early uh, time travel um, area. But the, the story of the dream narrative that takes you somewhere else is an old one. And there are a lot of other ways that people got around time without a machine. But this is a watershed, I think. Wells is often compared to the French novelist Jules Verne, who wrote adventure tales with some elements of science fiction. But that sense of a kind of explosive discovery, in this case, the future or in some alternate world, which you have to accustom yourself to and which reorganizes um, everything, reorganizes thought, um, that's very Wellsian. And I think that's very typical of how science fiction typically goes. Um, an, another thing I want to say about the sort of his influence and um, science fiction and the ways in which he does and doesn't act as a kind of key figure, um, one of the things that Wells figured out early on and that characterizes his stories, and again, this is a little different, I think, from Verne and from others, is that his idea is that you have one big 
change. Some the 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 alternate thing, the whether it's the the fact of being in a certain future world or you the way there are these, you know, another being that's in the world with you, whatever it might be, you've crossed into a different planetary structure or people are being made from animals. Um, or so a man finds a machine to turn himself invisible, whatever these things are, that's the only thing that changes. You might, the whole world might look different, but the structures by which you navigate a world, the way in which things are oriented sort of cognitively remain the same. So it was a kind of, these stories are quite lean in terms of the otherness that they imagine. He wants there to be a kind of, one big twist or transformation. And that's what you adjust to learn from experience. Um, there, it could be two, but my point is it's not a packed world of difference. And I think that's part of what made his book so readable at the time. Um, he called it the domesticating of the fantastic. Um, and he was also called to give another term by his friend Conrad, the realist of the fantastic. Um, and again, there's that sense of kind of creating a world that is recognizable, that operates according to realist principles, um, but then has that fantastic element. It is also the yoking of these science, what we now call science fiction uh, motifs with other big Western structures like the journey motif or um, exploration of another land or... Um, a, an effort to kind of imagine and reconcile a basic problem in one's own culture, whether that's climate change or the cooling of the earth in his imagination at the, that time, or class structure or war, so that there are big um, issues at stake and either in the settings or in the kind of parastructure that we're trying to address those through thinking about these alternate possibilities or these weird um, other structures or narratives or spaces or experiences. Um, so all of this play with reality is in the context of a variety of other ways in which people over time have written and thought about them. One of the great appeals of H.G. Wells' stories is that they are so relatable for the reader. It's very easy to insert yourself into the story and go along for the adventure. The power of this relatable quality was seen most infamously in 1938, when American actor Orson Welles read an adaptation of H.G. Wells' novel The War of the Worlds live on the radio. During the hour-long broadcast, there were some listeners who tuned in partway through and didn't know what was happening. Many listeners sincerely believed it was a breaking news program about a Martian army invading Earth. I think Wells was writing for the world, and there's a way in which his books are translatable, both in terms of language. It's very difficult to translate James Joyce. It's easier to translate H.G. Wells, and that's one reason why he's been so much translated. But it's also a translation in this other sense, that these works really have that capacity to be reformulated for a different moment, a different place, a different time, a different problem. Um, and they are, and they have been. And, and the more the merrier. I mean, things accrue value and power and interest with each adaptation. And that's one of the nice things about something like The Time Machine, or in that case, The War of the Worlds. 
Wells wrote stories that have inspired generations of audiences, artists, filmmakers, and other writers around the world. He made science accessible and gave us a playground to imagine new, liberated realities. There's a reason why these books keep coming back over and over and over in film, in you know, uh, all different media of all kinds, and they inspire different generations of writers and thinkers and imaginers and, and have infused pop culture and continue unabated. I mean, last year alone, there was a new Invisible Man. There were three new wars of the worlds. There's always a time machine. The time machine got us thinking. It got us thinking about the future. It got us thinking about time. Um, it got us thinking about how human beings, how humanity exists within long spans of time and why that matters and how we might imagine it. Um, and these are kind of human projects that preceded Wells, but he offered something that was transformative for those kinds of questions. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Farron Du. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.